Hi Jacob, welcome to Network Capital. Thank you, Utkash. We are excited to learn more about your career choices and what you're up to these days. So could you tell us a bit about what do you do and where you're headed? Yes, uh, at the moment I'm doing very little, uh, which might uh, not be a very good uh, start of a career talk, but uh, I'm in between two jobs or at least two occupations. Uh, for the last four years, I've been working with the Swedish Trade and Invest Council, first in uh, Austria and Switzerland, and now most recently in, uh, in India. Uh, and that is something I've enjoyed greatly, and uh, most importantly because it has given the insight into both uh, public administration, but also corporate life. Uh, so to understand the different motivations of, of these two, two stakeholders. Uh, for for the upcoming future, I'm now heading back to university. Uh, so I previously have a master degree in engineering from Linköping University in Sweden. And uh, having been a few years in, in career and working life, uh, my curiosity has sparked again for, for some uh, private interest that I think we might uh, come back to. So I will in the first place do a second master in uh, the social science of the internet at Oxford University, the Oxford Internet Institute, and then long-term also pursue a PhD in the same topic. Oh, that's fascinating. So tell us more about uh, how your interest got sparked in the social science of the internet and what specifically are the areas within this space that interest you? Yes, I think the, the interest in the social science of the internet is more a reflection about the broad curiosity that, that I've had for quite a while. Um, if I start from a different angle, already when I selected to go for engineering for my, uh, my first master and, and also the undergraduate degree, uh, it was not because engineering was my biggest passion. I actually already as a child was very much intrigued by society, by history, uh, read a lot of philosophy on my own and wanted to understand how, how societies worked and what, what made communities tick. Uh, my choice was more rational from the sense that I had gone a STEM program for my high school and I did quite well and had an easy time in, in math and physics and I thought that if I studied that officially I would maybe still read uh, uh, books about psychology or philosophy. I would still be interested in, in, in Mark and Hayek uh, uh, in my spare time. Whereas had I maybe gone for history or, or philosophy for my university degree, I would more likely than uh, not, not have uh, studied Fourier transformation or, or, or Gauss distribution curves uh, on my Saturday nights. <laughs> so, so now it's more going back to, to my actual interest and maybe these few years in adult life and career have gotten me the courage to actually pursue it rather than, uh, than just taking a degree that would prepare me for the, the workforce. So I think this is more coming back to, to my initial starting point. That explains the social science part. The internet is something I discovered way later. And the internet, I'm not here limiting in the sense of a search engine or, or, or a communication network, but more, more the evolution of technology and how central apart that is if we are to understand both our personal future but also our future as a society and I know that um, uh, maybe it's a poor reference to, to quote Swedish uh, finance ministers in an Indian podcast but uh, um, we, we had a very famous quote in the early 90s where our finance minister quoted that the internet was uh, an overpassing hype uh, I think he didn't have to step down there, there and then, but it has been a laughingstock joke in, in the Swedish media ever since. <laughs> but it was actually very few. It's easy to laugh about it now, but it was very few at the time who, who realized the explosive potential of, of networks and uh, free information and the, the importance of the flow of free information. Of course, there were pioneers at the universities, at, at, at the, within the... Um, the security agencies, some uh, science fiction writers and some academics. But I think society, it's only the last few 
years, maybe a decade or so, where it has become mainstream of talk about the, the digital transformation, uh, how it will affect uh, human life uh, uh, with both more hardcore academics, but also uh, maybe more uh, airport literature, uh, such as uh, Harari or, or Life 3.0, also from um, Max Tegmark. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think internet for, for me, I only discovered when I started working how the platform economy created and concentrated the value adds to certain network facilitators. If we take the, the very easy example of, uh, of the tax industry, because everyone is familiar with it, uh, the total profit of the industry might have remained the same, but the margins for individual drivers have gone down drastically, closing on in a point of zero, while the profits accumulate uh, at the network mm. or provider or a platform owner, such as uh, Uber. And uh, another example that I like to think of for myself is actually entertainment. If we take medieval era, um, I'm not uh, well familiar with the Indian cultural history to, to give you the names of the performers, but let's say that if it was year 1500, each city and village needed its own entertainers because uh, uh, there were simply too large distances to travel or maybe they traveled in the region. That means that uh, hundreds of thousands of people worldwide could sustain themselves through, through the art of, of music. Uh, what happened with radio and television was that each country, or in India maybe each state, uh, could benefit from a few pop stars in the 70s and 80s when radio was there. So that reduced the margins for the local singers in the in the pubs and, and, and in the clubs, but it created uh, a big revenue from, from some national or regional heroes. And what we have today with one language uh, for the music industry, uh, mainly English, we could basically accumulate the the entertainment resources for the entire population into a few few stars uh, uh, such as Justin Bieber or um, Oriana mm-hmm. who can entertain all of the world at the same time and that is largely thanks to communication technologies so we do see a concentration of resources and I think from from an academic point of view that is more of a, of a statement and declaration from a social point of view this is a much more urgent question uh, it it will be maybe one of the most defining questions what we will do of the time when we don't need to entertain ourselves or perform all the tasks we needed to do before the information technologies. But not only that, it's also if we are comfortable with finding a new identity when we no longer need to be analog humans. And, and, and that is the second part. And these two forces together is to me why so social science of the internet is such a relevant topic. Um, that answered the first part of your question. For me in particular, uh, I will look, my proposal is to look closely on the philosophy of information. So the institute I will be at, Oxford Internet Institute, has several different uh, domains from uh, data science to, to philosophy and has also academics representing the full range from, from computer scientists to um, psychiatrists or, or pure philosophers. Uh, philosophy of information is one approach. I'm not saying it's the approach, but it's one approach to try to generalize uh, ethics and moral one step higher than the human-centric ethics, which has been prevalent at least since enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we take it in even more concrete terms, could be a framework that Mm -hmm. encompass both digital, let's say artificial, and biological agents. And I'm still in my beginning of my journey to even grasp the topic, but I feel that the seeds of inspiration and the hints that this is very important uh, for, for the future is at least to me very clear, not only when it comes to autonomous systems such as uh, uh, autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars, or also you have within the medical sciences uh, micro-robots who could work in swarms in, in, uh, in for example, blood system. And this sort of ethics of informations uh, is a very recurring topic in, in all these fields. I see. And uh, how did your work experience after being an engineer 
shape your interest in this space? Was your work related at all with the uh, Swedish Trade and High uh, Trade Commission? The work as such would normally not be be connected uh, as per the job description. Uh, I think I've been lucky enough to to have a job and a leadership which has allowed me to uh, a big extent design the content of the work and and thereby coming into contact also with thematic areas that, that interest me as a person. Uh, one or two examples of that is uh, the innovation partnerships that I've been part of, of uh, establishing both with Sweden and Switzerland and now more recently with India and Sweden. And through that come into contact with with this question through the companies and academics who are taking part in this bilateral call for innovation and 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 seminars uh, but in a way more hands-on way it's to see how the companies the actual investors and the the strategic leaders of the organizations that we work with reason and what they focus on and here i can see a very big shift only through the last four years that um a trade council, in its most rudimentary term, is a very mercantilistic uh, institution. It's basically trying to optimize the trade balance uh, for individual nations, which from a utilitarian perspective is completely uh, a zero-sum game. Uh, however, even though now we, we might have some advocates for that with the upcoming trade wars or, or ongoing uh, policies, uh, what has happened is that companies look less and less for linear export. The linear export model is dead. We can't just produce in one country and then sell it and export it abroad. In order to be relevant as markets such as India or China, even Western companies need to innovate on the ground locally and uh, to use more frugal methods. And this requires more network and uh, collaborative approaches that has normally been the case. What used to be the big competitive advantage was to host big capex. Uh, you had entry of barriers through factories and capital. I think today is to be able to attract talent, to attract partners. And for, for that you have a series of, of tools of what you can do. One of them is to be purpose driven. If you have a very clear purpose why you are doing a project within the industry. For example, maybe instead of selling solar panels, you want to uh, solve air pollution in, in Delhi. Uh, at once, you will have a bigger buy-in both from the local government, but also from, from the consumers and the population who, who uh, view it as not just a marketing campaign, but, but an actually joint effort. Uh, number two is something you can do is work with open R&D and open innovation. That is, instead of focusing on protection, defensive measures such as IP rights, actually put your uh, requirements and technical specifications out there for innovators and entrepreneurs to solve. And also this is a very much in line with the sort of network dynamics, uh, which will be one of the focus of the social science of the internet. So, so sure, through both the innovation partnership approach and the strategy of companies, mm. I've been further convinced that, that this, is, is, this is an area which we are not yet fully grasping. And those who do grasp it will be very much sought over come 15, 20 years, either on the boards of, of companies or in policy forums. And this policy forum need not be limited to national institutions, but very much to international. Just as climate change or, or nuclear wars can't be battled in national parliaments, uh, areas such as um, artificial intelligence or, or, or even semantic web can uh, by no means be, be um, legislated or um, uh, controlled within national boundaries. Right. So how did a masters in engineering who worked in trade in multiple countries uh, think about writing his statement of purpose for the Oxford Internet Institute. Yes, I I was probably very naive and I am. Uh, we Swedes are blessed with uh, blue eyes in the, the most uh, symbolic sense. We are easy to fool. I tend to enter meetings without a back agenda. I like to tell people what I want and what's the motivation. And uh, I tried that route. I tried 
not to to produce or manufacture uh, a letter or or a purpose or statement uh, uh, that would follow let's say a, a blueprint from um, uh, from an advisory organization and and this is a point which i would like to generalize i think when it comes to to success many people are doing or thinking two two things which are questionable so basically two errors to avoid one is that you can follow a manual or a recipe for success i think it's possible to follow manuals and recipes to avoid failure mm-hmm. which is to ensure a certain base standards uh, which is uh, not to go out the wrong door or 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 not become um, uh, completely off timing in a situation but to actually succeed you need per definition to ne- break some rules and and to to challenge some uh, conventions uh, and this is the second then leads us to the second point and that is the unhealthy focus of on extreme success for example a lot of people chasing career goals or reading the biographies of of extreme outliers such as uh, founders of big companies uh, you have obviously Steve Jobs uh, um, um, Bill Gates or even Jeff Bezos but also presidents uh, or, uh, or or other types of personalities uh, now without defending anyone these sort of outliers are often outliers for a reason they will have personalities who vary greatly from you yourself and most people around you and it's not even sure that you would like to be one of them if yeah. you could mm-hmm. what i'm saying is if you have a natural distribution of everything from intelligence emotional intelligence empathic uh, people who accumulate extreme wealth and top of the hierarchical uh, pyramid in society uh, need often not be the most balanced personalities and it might not even be that you wish that they were your father or your 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 spouse now why am i saying that this combination of either reading these extremely successful people in a very 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 narrow sense of success yeah which is power uh, and then trying to apply a recipe will per definition lead to failure because for every drop out of how we try to start a company regardless how talented and successful outlier only a very small percentage would will fail so coming back now to 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 the statement rather than than uh, going for the most extreme or most uh, sort of perfectionated statement i think a good starting point is that you can stand for exactly everything in your statement don't try to write anything which you would need to uh, be reminded of yourself that that is actually you or 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 to put your lips very carefully in order to to repeat the same story and this is actually the same thing that makes a good startup pitch you can only buy anything or invest in anything if the people who stand there to to convey the message actually yeah. embodies that message and and stands up for it in his own personality yeah so i think that that would be my advice although i'm i'm probably not not the right person today there are people who are way better positioned than me to to give these sort of advice but i think there'll always be pe- people better or worse but it's uh, it's a very useful mental model to keep in mind mm-hmm. how do you avoid obvious failures mm-hmm. and how do you recalibrate people who are very successful in a in in one sense of the word um once you knew that you were applying you've thought about your statement of purpose how did you begin writing how much time did it take and uh, uh, did it change the message that you started with did it, did it change by the time you concluded it absolutely uh, it it changed a lot and uh, um, i was by no means doing it on my own uh, so uh, not only did i reach out to to professors and thought leaders in the field i also had a lot of support from uh, from friends and uh, most important my my girlfriend she's currently studying in the us and is way more experienced than i in in uh, both the field of academics but also in, in the process of application and uh, we we did as a team work on the application for at least one or one or two months and it did change a lot over the time and for me it was also partly uncomfortable because when you're writing personal statement you are putting yourself out there yeah 
uh, in the very most utmost sense. And to get feedback on, on things you write is a process which you need to get used to. Uh, and and some, sometimes one ends up getting a bit defensive to, mm-hmm. to protect uh, your psychology will tell you know what you, what I have written is was good. And what is so important is that you have people who give you feedback that you trust and that you respect. Because it's only when you first have connected, I think emotionally, whether it's a partner, as in this sense it, it, it was for me, uh, or, or a friend, or a mentor, uh, a professor, it's only when you have connected emotionally and you're 100% certain this person wants my best, mm-hmm. that you can be as open yeah. as you can to, towards feedback and input. I'm still not sure that that uh, a living being can be uh, 100% unbiased or, or open to, to input uh, without being uh, the Buddha himself. Uh, <laughs> that's another thing we need to work on, by the way, by, by being in India. But uh, at least by getting feedback from someone you trust and care, who you know care about you, it's a good start. Yeah. So um, what was the journey like? So you started uh, with the problem statement in mind yes. and iterated. Walk us through the process. So for that, we need to go back a bit to the to the actual topic sure. because for me, this is very little about academics. It's very little about the title, or it's actually even very little about career choice. I think that the sole focus of occupation as a purpose purpose in in life is the narrow one, and we need to keep in mind why we're doing it. Uh, I, I'm now at the fortunate state where I have worked for a few years and in work that I enjoy and financially uh, could have continued uh, which means that the education per se is not so strongly linked to career but more of personal curiosity and the, the question the core of the question is actually this what can replace the humanist project hmm. so since the enlightenment uh, basically we replace the belief in God with the belief that man is God. So if we see in all conflict, in all moral episodes, mm. what is happening? Is this humane? Can we do this? Uh, don't we harm other people? This mm. is coming into light with inequalities, coming into justice. Uh, it's only in a very few areas of life where we see that this sort of paradigm, this sort of worldview is it's just a worldview. It can be challenged, it can be questioned. One of them is actually the environment and the climate crisis. We yep. see that by us living our life, we consume resources and the planet dies. That is one way of, of, of seeing that the humanist project is, is a construction. I'm not saying it's, it's a bad construction. I'm saying it's not likely it will last forever. Mm-hmm. So we are probably moving towards new visions that will carry the society because I think that human society needs the grand narratives, the big stories. And we see the the humanist project coming to an end. And I, for my part, was very much uh, intrigued and, and even afraid about what might come next. And obviously then tra- tried to read up a lot on the, uh, on, on the topic. And we, we have a Swedish author, it's again a very niche reference, uh, Karl-Erik Edris, who wrote the book Where's the World Heading? And one of the things he pointed out is really that that the moral ethics, uh, the foundation of what you and I here now think is right or wrong, whether we think it's the best compass or not, it's the only compass that we mm-hmm. we, we have, and we have to reconcile that with uh, with whatever strategies we put for the future. Let's say, for example, that uh, why is in so many scientific uh, or science fiction movies it's a scary option when robot takes over because it's happening against our will mm. there's nothing per se dangerous about the transformation of the human species i mean all individuals uh, die my great grandfather lived he's not living now i'm living now i will probably not live uh, in 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 uh, 200 years mm. And we, we are accepting that. So since we're accepting that, we will probably also in theory accept the transition of, of the human species. But in order to do so, we need to have a moral framework mm-hmm. which is acceptable for each step in the process. Mm. So that brings us back to the key question. I want to know how can we find moral frameworks and ethics that allows for both artificial and biological agents? I started to do reviews on the topic and see where the... Uh, 
spearheading research is being done and obviously to some extent it is being done in private companies everything yeah. from uh, Google DeepMind and, and, and others which are much bespoken there's also a few few um, key institutions around the world such as the uh, Future of Life Institute the Future of Humanities uh, uh, within different uh, governmental secret service agencies uh, and so on and one of the big inspirations in the field of uh, informational ethics and philosophy of information is the professor Luciano Floridi at uh, the Oxford Internet Institute. And it was actually based on this mapping that I, together also with with my girlfriend who helped me in that process, we found uh, some different universities offering degree in this field where I was most interested. So the start was not which university is highest ranked, the start was not uh, where do I have highest chance of admittance it was really starting with this interest in this particular topic and the mapping of of what thought leaders and professors could be could be the right guide and inspiration so that's what how how we got to that stage Uh, for for me coming from a more applied background writing the writing samples and uh, also research proposal was a very 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 novel um, and unfamiliar experience you should tell our community members what the process is and what the people need to write yes so I think when it comes to writing a research proposal so Oxford Internet Institute asks all, all its candidates yeah. to write a research proposal yes and what else so for the process you will require a research proposal you will require a written sample paper uh, a personal statement and three references, mm-hmm. three letters of recommendations. Uh, so, so this is obviously a, a process that, that takes some time. And uh, for your part, since every offer you will get will be conditional on the grades or the GRE and so on that, that you can deliver on. But at this stage in time, the writing sample and the research proposal are the two core uh, core papers. Yeah. So the the writing sample in itself is more simple in the way that it just to show your ability that you can uh, think and write analytically, that you can produce clear and concise arguments, mm-hmm. that they themselves follow a red line and are not contradictory. Mm-hmm. The writing sample can often be at almost any topic, but it obviously shows good intent if, if you have writing sample within a, yep. in a related area. Yeah. Uh, that uh, is for for the writing sample. The research proposal is a more demanding. Um, how many words is the research proposal, and uh, how much is the writing sample? The, the, the writing sample was around uh, two thousand words, mm-hmm. and the research proposal around uh, two thousand five hundred. Got it. Uh, the research proposal is more challenging from two aspects. First of all, it needs to be concrete. No one does research in general. Mm-hmm. Everyone very much does research in particular. Mm-hmm. So it's all good that one has a, a, an interest in fields such as, let's say, philosophy or, or, or um, mm-hmm. philosophy of information or even artificial intelligence. But you need to identify the research gap. The second is it needs to be unique. So research is all about finding the gaps in the knowledge production and filling them. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be the relevant gaps. Mm-hmm. And not just the gaps you find relevant but also the gaps that someone who's sitting with either planning a, a department's research or someone who's allocating uh, funding mm-hmm. also find is, is relevant. And uh, to, to this, there are actually no shortcuts. And I think that's a good thing. I think people who are looking for shortcuts should consider if they are into the right, uh, right, right program, right or, program yeah. or right domain. I think what, what I started with was a very, very, very broad uh, and also thorough literature review to read as much as possible I could on the topic and to especially follow those line of references which pointed towards future mm-hmm. research. So if you will read a lot of research paper, you will see that most of them end with with directions to, towards future research. And if you can triangulate such recommendation, maybe from two or three different mm. uh, authors, and especially recent in time, that still is based on a line of academic tradition from from the big uh, macro thinkers, Mm. 
then you're probably on to something. And uh, one thing that I discovered during my very initial um, literature review was that philosophy tends to be quite theoretical. Uh, and some, Which can be worrisome to an engineer. <laughs> absolutely. And some might even mockingly call it for armchair philosophy, which is uh, wise men with grey beards sitting and um, telling each other anecdotes. Mm. There is a competing line of, of um, academic tradition called experimental philosophy, which is very closely linked to uh, how more more a psychology is working, where you go out, you, you conduct experiment and service on, on, on people, mm. or maybe even simu- conduct simulation. Mm. And I saw that for philosophy of information, there, there was a niche that so far, because it's a very young and also evolving and emerging right. topic, uh, there has been ideas put forward, but very little has so far been validated, simulated, uh, conducted in any sort of practical way. So the, the question that I put forward is to what extent is philosophy of information uh, does it harmonate with present day mm. human moral preferences? Right. And uh, that can be tested through many ways. One is to model such scenarios uh, in, in let's say simple programming um, and run them. Another would be to formulate uh, uh, service online or, or elsewise mm-hmm. to match people's choices and preferences yeah. with the logical outcome of such a, right. such a Moller framework. And um, but if we look at the process again, this was by no means yeah. uh, an easy pick. Yeah. There, there were competing uh, ideologies. ideologies and questions that, that uh, intrigued me. Uh, one maybe thing that is of interest for people in general when they are writing a, a research proposal and which I probably fail at is to try to link whatever research question you have into abstract concepts of of, um, of society such as for example power, gender, mm. race, uh, equality by doing that you will naturally need to design your experiment in a more diverse way. Mm -hmm. You will also tap into the existing structures because you have school of thoughts who are working on these issues and you will Mm. find interest groups who who are very much endorsing this line of research for one way or another. And and it also ensures that that you have, have a certain level of generalizability on your research which is very important so whatever research finding comes out should not be research specific it should be generalizable to to a more broader uh, domain i see um so what was the process of editing like i know you took support from uh, some friends and family but uh, what did you keep in mind and how did you make it say from a 5,000 word document to a 2,500 word document yes um, the proportion writing versus editing was definitely no more than 30 or 40% writing and 60 to 70% mm-hmm. editing definitely and, and when you were editing what do you keep in mind yes. really? Th- there were a few tricks which I by no means was aware of myself that I learned and got taught throughout the process. One of that is the importance of connecting each sentence and each paragraph to each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think based on my personality and also my eager curiosity for the subject, I tried to spec as many interesting line of thoughts and reasoning as possible into the document, Mm -hmm. basically wanting to show everyone how much I've read or Mm -hmm. uh, how interested I am in this and also to put out actual potential research question. Uh, Far more important than that is to have the clear red line. You should be able to read every line following Mm -hmm. the next and understanding how they are connected. So using the connecting words in the beginning and the beginning, giving hints to where the next paragraph will start Mm -hmm. and using backwards references in the document. That sort of glue uh, is essential. And that was something that I had to work a lot with myself. Mm -hmm. Now this can seem contradictory to my second advice, uh, but it's actually not. And that is 
to keep it short and the one way of doing this is to make damn sure you're never repeating yourself right a lot of people me included repeat ourselves many times and we do that by saying things over and over again with different words mm. for example that is what i just did here uh, so when you go through and edit the document very thoroughly make sure that every single line every single sentence says something and it says something unique right. filling sentences or repetitive reformulation sentences need to either be removed yeah. or merged yeah. and one of the most common things that uh, I needed to do through the editing process was to take two sentences which said roughly the same thing mm -hmm. and merge them to one sentence with encapsulate both and that yeah. way I could keep the red line and still shorten it so uh, to, to repeat and to be very concrete, A, use a lot of connectors, both in between sentences and between um, uh, paragraphs. Mm -hmm. Number two, make sure that each sentence is unique and uh, says something. Only then you can keep the length of it. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's, that's super thorough. Thank you very much for sharing it. Uh, how many people did you take advice from? Because sometimes people take advice from too many people and end up saying something that they never wanted to say. Mm -hmm. just because they wanted to include feedback yes, from everybody yes. um, I probably took more advice in this process mm. than I normally do mm. I think if, if, if I'm a bit self-critical uh, one of the areas I need to work on is, is actually asking for help and advice yeah. uh, I think sometimes there's also some some sense of uh, excitement in trying your wings on on your own. Uh, it, oh, major! It, yeah, sure. it's, it's 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 exciting. But in this case, I was a bit more humble, also because I I knew that I lacked the experience of the domain. Mm. Uh, to answer your question in number, for the actual writing of the uh, research proposal, three four people, mm -hmm. and then with a heavy overweight of of, of one or two. Uh, However, I took advice from more people in discussing whether I should actually apply in first place or not. I see. In that, I took, uh, and I'll get to, to, to why, there I took advice from at least 10 people from the various fields, from both people I very much respected as, yeah. as leaders and professional, both from insiders within the field of, of academia mm -hmm. and from, from friends in my situation. I said, yeah. what, what would you have done? Yeah. And here I got a very, very wide um, palette of, of responses tell from, us about it um, one way of looking at it and, and uh, this might be a bit, bit uh, again to, to draw uh, too much of on, on, on simple conclusions but different institutions vary in importance over time and one example of that is let's say the churches in Europe so during medieval era mm. the Pope and the churches were almost almighty and they rivaled the Holy Roman Emperor of power uh, today that is not the case but the churches still stands the Pope is still there and the priests are still there mm. even in Sweden a country which is to 80-85% secular why am I saying this? I also think that the role of the universities will change and the academia over the coming 30 and 40 years and I think that the long term trend is that their importance and structures eroding. I think with alternative facts, with private research institutions, mm. with a different view on epistemology and authority, formal titles and locations will matter less and less. Right. I bring this forward because a lot of visionary thinkers that I respect reminded me that you know, going to a famous university is not what, what is important in the future. Mm -hmm. It's maybe to build informal networks. Uh, the titles will be even less important. I mean, um, long gone are the days where you got a job because you, you could write uh, civil engineer or, or doctor on your uh, yeah. um, visiting card. So, so very much aware of, of, of that happening. The other part of the advice I got was where can you have the most resources mm. and time to develop your own personality yeah. and to think? And to me, that in the end was a piece of advice, the seed of inspiration that got stuck in my brain, that I'm happy where I am, but I still spend my eight working hours of the day, which more often than not gets to be nine or ten, mm. uh, delivering on other people's visions. Mm. 
And one of the things that academia, now in the first place for, for, for the master year or, or in the more long term during research, uh, is the freedom to, during the days of your life for this period of time, actually read and conduct research on what you think is most is most important exactly and this time and resources for reflection and mentoring was in the end was for me was the more Mm -hmm. important factor so so to answer your question uh, to orient which direction to go in i took advice from as many people as possible and especially people that i knew had had insight in the field for the writing itself Two, three people for for the content and then one or two more for proofreading. Right. And I mean, that, that's just a hygiene factor, not to send uh, anything in that. And uh, did they change content. anything major or just a little bit here, a little bit there? More a bit here and there. Okay. But I think that also has to do with the process of writing that I put a lot of hours in the beginning to read and to produce the the hard content, the ideas. Mm-hmm. By doing that, there was probably very little room for someone who who read it through as a uh, you know as a friend or, or or even as a colleague to to give advice to 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 catch up with that sort of um, insight into the mm. topic to to revolutionize the whole mm. the whole outline of of the thesis. Uh, of course, that might have been useful, but it's very difficult for someone to to deliver on that. Right. Uh, when it comes to language, uh, things changed quite a lot, and uh, I mean, I also have to to take account or account for the fact that English is not my first language; it's also yeah. not my second language. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm I'm writing this in my third language, and that means. Uh, uh, I have a limited vocabulary, and I do rely on on citations from uh, my pre readings and from from my supporting network uh, mm. or to perfect that uh, mm-hmm. that research that I proposal. See. Yeah. I see. Um, and what happened once you submitted uh, the application form? Yeah. So I had b- because. During this time, also my girlfriend was doing an exchange here in Oxford, mm-hmm. so I was visiting her several times, which also meant that I had the possibility to uh, to see some of uh, some professors and some mm. uh, of the thought leaders within my field, uh, which also was my source of inspiration. Uh, so I I anchored the ideas what I wanted to do, and also. Uh, asked one or two of them to be uh, references and, yeah. uh, and um, potential supervisors in the future, and I think that that was one uh, important part in, yeah. in 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 the application. Also, for your own or for my own sense of of um, security, that this is the right thing to do. Mm. But by at least bouncing it with some insider, right. you know that you're you're not sailing off to mm. to America when you're actually looking for India. Uh, yeah. That would be unfortunate. <laughs> uh, although even misventures can uh, can lead, lead to, to some discovery. To sure. Some discovery. Uh, number two was the interview phase, and uh, nowadays the interviews happen all online uh, through Skype so I was contacted by the department and uh, we had a Skype interview in February I think uh, it's it's a good policy also from a fairness and and um, uh, equality point of view that uh, people do have different possibilities to come to a place like Oxford, the flight uh, ticket and so on and by having a very standardized process you, you ensure making it an equal playing yeah, field it's a, yeah. it's a very level playing field for everyone so I, that I had online uh, then I got the final admittance from the institution around uh, late March However, that is only the start of the Oxford process. Uh, this was something that no, tell us I about myself. The interview. Yes, I, I will get to that. But this mm. was something that I was um, m- myself uh, not aware of going forward. So, so we'll get back to to all the other steps. The interview itself was roughly one hour long. Uh, and they do that for everybody, one hour roughly. I think it can vary. They they have maximum one hour schedule, but sometimes half an hour might be uh, be enough. 
Uh, for me, it was the director of the institute and the director of the program. And yeah. Normally, they are two to three people. And one thing that many, I think, applicants go astray is that they think that the interviewers will mainly focus on your research proposal. Now, that is the one thing you are sure to be well read about. <laughs> In order to test your mental agility, your academic curiosity, and your uh, general motivation, mm. uh, best topic is probably outside uh, that. Uh, and I mean, uh, as with all these institutions, there are, there are certain things that uh, that are best kept within the forms where we're bespoken. But uh, uh, one of two things I can really give people advice uh, on is to uh, th- think a bit broader. Think about what is the goal of the institution you're mm. applying to. Uh, what do they want to achieve with their research? What are their big topics? Uh, uh, if you wouldn't do this particular research, do you have two or three ideas of, of alternative research questions uh, to help your peers? Uh, and so on and so on. Uh, I don't think as a student, uh, as a graduate student as, uh, at um, more prestigious universities, you're also an important asset to contribute to, to the pool. And as we talked before about the network economy, your contribution there will be part of the, of the pool, of the pool power of the university. To think also what outside the proposal or such mm. can you contribute what is that you bring to the table yeah. which experiences which skills uh, which networks and, and and how could you um, also transform that into mm. to value of course this goes back to what we talked about before only only tell that if that is also something that corresponds to who who you really are because no one will be happy if you are in a situation where you shouldn't be and you least of all if you get a, a job within, um, let's say, analytical financing, and you actually can't program in, in, in Excel, you won't have a good time. So these things, these tips are good advice, but only to the extent that you can actually st- stand up for them. Yeah. Um, and yes, then you were telling us about the process. Exactly. So in the Anglo-Saxon or Anglophone world, uh, very often admittance to the university and funding are two very um, separate streams mm-hmm. and are only partially linked and uh, for me personally I got admitted into the program but I did not receive university funding and uh, that is actually the case for most applicants so the majority of, of graduate students at the Oxford Intelligence at, yes are dependent on on uh, third party funding and uh, I then entered the second application phase uh, obviously strengthened with the acceptance letter uh, to both Swedish, British and global institutions and this can be so different uh, organizations as from government research funds mm-hmm. to let's say institution specific research funds right. or sometimes even thematic research funds yeah. uh, saying we sponsor researchers or, or graduate students uh, in the field of mm. Uh, artificial intelligence or, or, or uh, in moral philosophy etc for me personally uh, what in the end was successful was a country specific uh, research grant fund uh, which supported higher education for Swedish young professional and I am sure there are also corresponding programs in India and thanks to the historical ties if mm. I may say between mm. India and UK there are uh, very very niche um, research funding programs also in between the Oxford universities and, and India. Yeah. Uh, so that was the second process. Then the third is the college uh, allocation. Mm-hmm. And for graduate students, this is a big difference. As an undergrad, you're normally already picking a college when you're applying for your degree. So you would apply for, let's say, PP at Hartford College in Oxford. Mm-hmm. For graduate Students, you mainly apply for a course and, and to an institutions, and then you're allocated a college. Mm-hmm. In my particular case, mm. uh, we had a list of 13 colleges, and you could only pick a one preference. But obviously, with uh, some uh, 20 or 30 incoming graduate students, uh, it's very much up mm. to 
the university where you then happen. So I was allocated the Keeble College, which is uh, for those familiar with Oxford, the big red brick uh, one looking like a train station in, in Victorian age. Mm. Uh, it's one of Oxford's biggest colleges. And uh, I, I've heard also fairly um, successful in the rugby competitions. But, but that was not something that I could have much influence over. Mm. Still, it's something that will affect my Oxford experience a lot because the college is like a home that will be the main responsible partner for accommodation, for mentorship, for social activities, for nutrition, healthcare. So very, 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 very simplified. We can view the college as the academic family and the institution as the academic workspace or office. Right. So I will also have uh, one mentor at the college and one, one at the institutions. I see. Um, what are you most looking forward to in the coming months? Hmm? I'd say three things. One, I've already mentioned, it's the time for reflection and for reading based on interest. I know that that is not suiting everyone because some people need more structure, but I'm, I'm very much thriving in that sort of environment and I look forward to it. Uh, number two is the inspiration of thought leaders and peers. So I'm, I'm very humble for the fact with that the, the sort of students, colleagues and, and also professors I will engage with in Oxford are, are among the uh, best in the world and conducting cutting edge uh, research on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's they're all about being in the right ecosystem and ask the right question. I think by, by asking the right questions, I will advance myself probably more than doing my own, own studies or research. Third is change for the change of sake of change. And this is something that have defined my life at least since I've been 18. I have very seldom been at one geographical location or one type of activity for more than two, three years at a time. And the thinking behind that is to expose myself to as diverse set of realities as possible, yeah. being domains such as business, government or academia or countries I mean, from, from uh, more liberal uh, Northern Europe to more conservative continental Europe to, to maybe a completely different uh, societal structure in, in South uh, Asia. Uh, so I think that this would be yet another move that uh, could help challenge my existing worldview and uh, probably and hopefully help, help me to adapt in a, in a more acceptable and, mm. and, and global worldview. Right. Um, congratulations for making it uh, to the Oxford Internet Institute. Congratulations on securing the scholarship and congratulations for exploring the world from so many different countries, so many different lenses, engineering, philosophical, and now a new dimension is to be added. I will say that it has been an absolute pleasure uh, in knowing you and uh, we look forward to you know, keeping you engaged through the Network Capital UK-based community. Thank you very much, Utkash. I look forward to being in touch. Yeah, thank you for your time.